Well, good evening. Hey, how about that school in Haiti? That's going to be amazing, isn't it? It's, it's so small if, if each of us did that, uh, that that whole school is going to be built or, or what they need to do to do the first phase. So they do them in phases. But that after the first phase, it becomes a functioning school. Uh, for that community. And so they built one last year, and, uh, and now they're going to be building one this year. So he was in our, uh, Marvin was in our, with us in our staff meeting, I guess a month or so ago, and uh, just to talk to us about the school, really to promote it so people could go on the trip, because people from City Life will go on these trips with Marvin uh, to help uh, on these projects. And, uh, and when he told us the number, we were like, we, we, we should be able to raise that money in three campuses in one night. In one night. And so all the fundraising that they're doing can go to the school that's, that's going to come after that. And so just be praying about that, about being able to make that, uh, that offering. So, so let's talk about food a little bit before we get into the sermon. Can we do that? Come on, right? I mean, everybody have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, I'm still, I was talking with the Newport News campus last weekend. You know, every other year is a little bit of a disappointment for me because nobody cooks for me because they're from New York, the liver and the gizzard in the neck. And I grew up in Verina, and that's a part of my Thanksgiving. And so next year, Vanessa says, gross, right? And so next year, I'll be back in Verina, just outside of Richmond, and I'll be able to, all by myself. I've, tr- I've tried to pass on the tradition to my children, and they're not having any of it. So that's the New York side of them that has taken over. So, so, all right, so this is my question. I like to do a little participation. Do we, ha- do we have any strategic eaters in the room? And this is you if you are a strategic eater. You don't like the food on your plate to touch the other items. Anybody? Raise your hand. All right. Come on. All right. Now, so, so this is another strategic eater. You know you're a strategic eater if. This is me. I manage the portions of all the different things that I have on my plate. So at the end, I've got one bite left of everything that... I've got, uh, see, I know, there you go, there's one, who are those, Paul's, uh, who else, anybody else, anybody else, right, and right, it's a dilemma, because at the end, you, you have to decide, what do I want the last bite to be, that's a big deal, so for this year, for me, it was a sweet potato casserole, I was like, oh, caramelized brown sugar, it's like eating dessert while you're eating, eating your meal, so, and then I guess the rest of you, right, you're just putting it on the plate, and then it just, you're just making it disappear, right, just making it disappear. Hey, Norvell, that's great. That, that's just the first plate, right? That's just the first plate. And then dessert. That's not even talking about dessert. How many of you just do pick one dessert, or how many, how many of you do the platter where you get a little bit of everything? I know, see? Yep, sampler platter. Sampler platter. So what if I were to say to you, I'm not going back to that campus on the south side anymore. Because they don't have enough people that are strategic eaters at the campus. I'm not going back there. Or what if you were to say to somebody, maybe you're visiting tonight, and, and somebody says, well, how was it? And you go, well, I'm not going back there. Because the person that was sitting next to me, they let their food touch on their plate at Thanksgiving. I'm not going back to the church, right? You, you would look at that person and go, what's wrong with you? If you're not going to go back there because of that, they're probably glad that you're not showing up. Because you got problems, right? I mean, who, who would do that? So, but that's, that's how we do our lives, isn't it? We, we, we have these lists of reasons why we won't pursue community with people. We have these lists of why we won't pursue relationships with other people. Sometimes those lists are healthy. Sometimes they're good. But a lot of times it's lists that should not even exist in our lives that rob us from relationships with other people that God has put into our lives so that we can have fellowship one with another. Those lists for us have got to get smaller 
And the groups of people that we pursue relationships with have got to get more diverse. And that's what this whole series about race and politics is about. This is my definition for harmony. It's harmony is not achieved through uniformity, but rather through diversity that is in perfect cooperation with one another. Let me read that again. Harmony is not achieved through uniformity, but rather through diversity that is in perfect cooperation with one another. Now, we're going to cover a lot of ground tonight, a lot of different texts we're going to work through. Uh, we put these notes online, so if you go to the citylifeva.com website, choose the Suffolk campus, and you can download this PDF if we move faster than you would prefer as a note taker. So, Father, we just thank you for this time that we have together together tonight and this last weekend of our series, Race and Politics. We, we pray, Father, that, that as a church, that this study that we've been in for several weeks, that you're going to help us reflect the kind of diversity that you long for every church to demonstrate. In Christ's name, come on, and everybody said, amen. amen. Let, me, let me just say, too, if you're if you're visiting with us tonight, I've met a few people who are who are, are visiting. Pastor Justin, who's normally here, uh, is at our uh, Williamsburg campus. Pastor Jamie, who's our Williamsburg campus pastor, is in Newport News. And then uh, I'm here. I'm usually at the Newport News campus here in Suffolk. And so we rotate around uh, a little bit uh, just to cross-pollinate some. And so if you're visiting with us, let me just say, if you're, if you're looking for something that describes who we are, it's one simple statement, and it's heaven now, heaven forever. All, all of city life has, forms around this one belief that the eternal life that Jesus promises us is not just measured by time, but it's supposed to be measured by fulfillment. That eternal life is not, this is what I grew up, I grew up believing, not because my parents taught me something, right? We all adopt these beliefs that no one taught us, it's our own myths that, that we embrace. And I believe that you've got to give up everything worth doing if you want to get to heaven. And when I was in my early 20s and began to read the Bible for the first time on my own, I started in the book of John. And when I came to the 10th chapter where Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest possible measure, I realized I had been living based on a lie because I didn't want to give up everything that was worth having so I could go to heaven. And what I began to realize is that everything that's worth having is on the road to heaven. And so that's why we have this message as a church, heaven now, heaven forever. That Christianity is not about deferred gratification. That every no of God is robbing us from mediocrity. And so every campus and the campuses that we're going to be planting in our future are all going to be planted based around this belief of heaven now, heaven forever. That eternal life is measured by time and fulfillment. And so if you're looking for a church that believes that way, then you're going to find a home here. All right, so Acts 13. Acts 13 Verse one. So, so before I read this, before I read this verse, I just I, I want to, as an introduction, just to give us a couple examples of how racial tension has been part of the church forever. It's it's been a part of the church forever. I think we realize that slavery has been a problem in the world since the beginning of time, and it still is in many respects. But but the idea that racial tension was a problem in the early church, I think sometime. It escapes us. We think it was a problem in the world of the early church, but we don't think of it as being having been a problem in the church. So look at this verse, Acts 13. Now, this is one of the most historic moments in the early church. This is where Paul and Barnabas are going to be 
prophetically prayed over and sent out. This is the beginning of Paul's ministry and planting churches, which if he had not been called to that, we wouldn't have half of the New Testament that we have today. So this is not just the birthing of, the, of, of, the, uh, of Christianity in the known world. This is also the birthing of even Scripture, the New Testament. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, the childhood companion of King Herod and Saul. Now, many of you have read that verse lots of times, right? Now, I, I got Ben's permission before we, I, before we, I did this, but, but Ben and I, we're, I've just gotten to know Ben over the Ben's getaway and I met him for the first time. And uh, I'm going to be his friend even though he's a Cowboys fan, which is very difficult for me to be here this weekend after our, our, our heartbreaking loss. So I got his permission. But, but what if at the end of the service when we were kind of putting things away and we're picking up the next step cards, and you heard me say, right, I'm going to holler it out to Ben. Hey, black man, how about picking those cards up over there? Right? Yeah. Because <laughs> he's got a good heart, right? Can, right? Can you imagine? Now, if you're looking for a reason to not go back to a church, I would say that would be a good one right there. Right? That's a good reason. Who, who would do that? But, but that's, that's what the church in Antioch was like. This, this man, who was black, was given a name that was purely based on the color of his skin. Why does God put that kind of stuff in the Bible? I think because he's trying to tell us something. Is that the struggles that we have today are a lot of the same struggles that they had then. And that we have to overcome them. Right? It's in there, I think, as an example of this has got to change. I think the Holy Spirit, I, I would, I, I, this is my guess. I think Luke, when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, he gave us the gospel, Luke, and he also gave us Acts. I think when he's writing that, I think Luke is probably thinking, yeah, I should probably leave that out. We, we probably shouldn't put that in. I think the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. You're going to put it in there because that's what they call him. And there needs to be something in Scripture that reminds people this is the kind of stuff that needs to change. We, we cannot relate to people just because the color of their skin. Now listen to Galatians 4. Let me jump there. So we're just kind of setting it up tonight. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Think of it this way. If a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children, those children are not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. The reason why Simeon in Antioch was known as the black man is because people were still slaves to the principles of this world. And part of this journey of making a devoted follower of Christ is at some point we're supposed to leave behind the principles of this world that used to direct our will and our attitudes and our actions. And we have to start picking up the principles of the kingdom of heaven. And when we start allowing the principles of the kingdom of heaven to govern how we think and how we act and how we live, I think the list of the reasons why we won't relate to people gets smaller and the group of people that we begin to relate to gets bigger. When we begin to leave behind, maybe ways of thinking, the principles of this world, as Paul calls them here in his letter to the Church of Galatia, when we leave those behind, the diversities of our communities is going to grow exponentially. 
both by people that look different than we are and people that believe differently than we do. So I'm going to talk to you tonight about two factors that I believe make up a huge part of this principles of this world that, that seem to rob us of the communities that we're supposed to be a part of that are incredibly diverse and become a picture of the harmony that we're supposed to have in this world. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I blogged about this not too long ago, this one factor. I'm calling it the fear factor, the fear factor. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now this last word in this verse in the Greek is the Greek word sophronismos. And this word gives people trouble because they're not sure which way to translate it. So depending on the Bible that you're reading, some say sound mind, some say discipline, some say judgment. And, and it's one of these words where they weren't supposed to pick which one because it's all of those. In fact, the definition that I would write for sophronismos is this. My spirit when renewed by the Holy Spirit, should transform my mind in a way that is biblically sound, leading to self-discipline and good judgment. I should be characterized by this description as a devoted follower of Christ. Now, what happens oftentimes as Christians, when, when other Christians start talking about being afraid, we pull this verse out like a two-by-four and whack people right over the head with it, Right? When, and when people talk about being afraid, we go, well, hey, 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, right? So, but this is the problem. The verse says that he hasn't given us a spirit of fear, which means that we're not supposed to be characterized by fear, but fear as a healthy emotion should be a part of all of our lives, right? It's, it's important for us to have certain kinds of fear. I mean, we've got teenagers, and Derek just got his driver's license. Do you think I want him to be a little bit afraid while he's driving? Yeah, you better believe I do, right? You want them to understand the magnitude of consequences, right? It's the first time in his life where he's has the, he's has, he has the power to take another human life. Are you with me? It's good to have a little fear in your heart in certain circumstances. Fear is, as an intuitive sense is important. Vanessa and I, when we first got married, I lived in the inner city of Richmond, and we were part of an effort to revitalize a crime-ridden neighborhood. Are you supposed to be a little afraid in certain communities that are stricken by poverty? You better believe that you are, because that, that intuitive sense of something isn't right can get you out of a dangerous situation when you need to get out of there. The Bible talks about a fear that's healthy. I'm not going to go to all these verses tonight, but they're in the download if you want to take a look at those. Psalm 111.10 talks about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 15.33, Revelation 15.4, and in Luke 12, verses 4 through 5, it talks about actually being afraid of God because of the judgment that he could bring upon our lives if we reject Christ. Why are all those verses in the Bible about fear? Because the emotion of fear is a healthy thing. As long as that emotion doesn't become a spirit of fear, meaning that it characterizes who I am, and I'm now a fearful person. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Don't be a fearful person. That should not be the sophronismos of your life. That shouldn't characterize who you are. But to feel fear at times, we should feel fear. In the right circumstance, in the right situation, 
And sometimes it's these fears that lead to political division in communities. Because this person votes for this candidate because they have fears about how things are going to happen. And then maybe people over here, they vote for this candidate because they have some fears. Not unhealthy fears, but healthy fears about the direction the country might go in. And as devoted followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to not be dismissive of the fears that other people have when it's a healthy emotion that's born out of a reasonable circumstance. We don't have diverse communities in the church today for a lot of reasons because one is that we don't make any room for fear at all. And so people are afraid to talk about their fear. And you know what? Then they leave. They leave. At City Life, we want to be a place that says, hey, you can talk about your fears here. And you know what? If it's an unhealthy fear and if fearfulness characterizes who you are, then we're glad you're here too because there's a journey that we can go on together where the Holy Spirit begins to give you hope again in certain areas of your life where you've lost it. So let's talk about Romans 12, 15. This is a, a partner verse I like to call it to 2 Timothy. Romans 12, 15. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Now, if you've been a part of City Life for any amount of time, you've heard me say this before. This is a fill-in-the-blank text. Now, what does that mean? It means that there is a principle that, that the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us, and he's filled in the blank with some specifics, but they might not be your specific, right? So the principle here is not to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Those are the fill-in-the-blank parts. The principle here is that as devoted followers of Christ, God expects us, God expects us to feel the emotion that another devoted follower of Christ feels, even if it's not my own circumstance. The world, the principles of this world, calls for emotional em empathy. Emotional empathy is having the, an appropriate response to someone else's fear that you might not share. But emotional empathy says, I'm going to have an appropriate response to that. I'm not going to be dismissive of them. I'm not going to belittle them. That's a great start. But that's really in the realm of the principles of this world. We're called to live according to the principles of the kingdom. And this is one of those principles where God says to us, I don't want you to just have an appropriate response to them. I want you to work your heart to get into a place. Not that you have to share their circumstance, but you're going to share their emotion because that's how far your love reaches for them. God feels our feelings. He feels our feelings, even though he does not share our circumstance. Why is that? It's because he loves us that deeply. The church has got to be a place where people begin to love each other so deeply, where even though I vote on this candidate because of these fears that I have, that I can understand why this person voted for that candidate because of those fears that they have. And you know, all of a sudden, I want my heart to feel these fears, even though I don't share in the circumstances. That's a Romans 12, 15 principle. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And you can put any other emotion that you want to put in there. And God says the community of the church that's centered around Christ, that is empowered by the Holy Spirit, goes far beyond emotional intimacy, empathy and, and, and gets to a place where there's emotional sharing. Now, these aren't suggestions that God gives to us. 
We have a loving relationship with Christ, but the context of that loving relationship is one of command and authority. Listen to Matthew 28, 20. It says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands. It doesn't say make suggestions to them. It doesn't say encourage them in this way. It says, teach them to obey all the commands that I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, most of us teach Matthew 28, 20 as this great moment of hope, right, where he's going to be with me always. And sometimes we minister to ourselves when maybe we're feeling a little bit despondent. We say, no, Christ is with me always. And that's certainly a part of this. But you know what else is a part of this? The greater context is him saying, hey, i got commands. And I expect you to do what I say. And I expect you to hold each other accountable so that other people are doing what I say. And then he says, and guess what? If you don't, oh, I'm going to be there because I'm everywhere all at the same time. You with me? It's like, it's like when, when, when you're giving your children new liberties. Maybe they're going to someone's house for the first time. Deep down inside as a parent, those are the moments where you, where you long for omnipresence. Right? You want you don't want to just, oh, I want to be everywhere all at the same time because they need me to be there. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I got commands and I have expectations of you. And I've got rules that I want you to live by, and I'm gonna be there. And when you're doing it the wrong way, I'm gonna be tapping you on the shoulder. And one of the things that we need him tapping on our shoulder about is when we're dismissing and belittling the fears of others as opposed to saying to our heart, oh, no, 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 we don't share in their circumstance, but God expects me to share in that emotion because this is a principle of the kingdom of heaven. And even though we were all born into the principles of this world, part of the beauty of the story of the resurrection of Christ, not just is that we're going to be raised to life one day when we breathe our last, is that we're supposed to be raised to life in the here and now where we're rescued, which is why I read those verses out of Galatians chapter 4. We're supposed to be set free from the bondage of the principles of this world and placed into a sense of belonging that's just as powerful as the principles of the kingdom of heaven, and that's part of what it means to be an heir and a child of God. So how do I do that? Well, I'm just going to give you one simple step. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is there, the desires of your heart will also be. You've heard me say this many times. Right feelings, follow right actions. This is a fill-in-the-blank text. It's the principle that we're being taught by Christ. Where your treasure is, which is an act of your will, it's a choosing to do what's right, valuing the right things. What what does it say? The desires of your heart will be there also. You've got to say to yourself, self, I don't understand those fears. I don't know why they would feel that way. But guess what? Because they're a devoted follower of Christ, and so am I, that we're part of the same family. We have the same Father, and I need to feel those fears. So I begin to make some conscious decisions. I begin to make some choices about how I think about them. I begin to pursue them in conversation, to sit down and talk and to ask questions and to listen. These are all acts of your will. And as you begin to take those steps, as you begin to take those steps, you know what? A crazy thing begins to happen. Your heart begins to catch up. Emotion comes because it follows the direction of your will. 
The fear factor is whenever I'm being dismissive of the fears of others who are different from me in race and politics, but also refusing to feel their fear, especially when I don't share in their circumstance. All right, let's do one more. That's the fear factor. Now let's talk about the Barzillai factor, the Barzillai factor. Now we're given the Barzillai factor out of Nehemiah chapter 7 introduces us to this gentleman. Nehemiah 7, 63 to 65. Now, just to create some context, this is Nehemiah. Israel is in ruins. Nehemiah is the cupbearer of the conquering king. He gets word that Israel is still lying in ruins, and God speaks to him and says, hey, I want you to go back and rebuild this nation. And so Nehemiah comes back. They're rebuilding the city, right? They rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And then there's also an effort that's going to come with Ezra, who was a contemporary of Nehemiah. They were there at the same time. As there's also a rebuilding of the temple. So it's not just the, the rebuilding of a nation, but it's also the rebuilding of a way of worship that is the prophetic story of the coming of Christ. And so God doesn't want this to be lost to the world. So they're there. The, the, uh, the wall's been rebuilt. Temple worship is being restored, and according to Mosaic law, the only way that temple worship can happen is there have to be certain people who are priests to direct it. So three family of priests, Hobiah, Hakots, and Barzillai, also returned. Now, this Barzillai had married a woman who was a descendant of Barzillai of Gilead, and he had taken her family name. Now, they searched for their names in the genealogical records, but they were not found. So they disqualified, so they were disqualified from serving as priests. Now, why is this name Barzillai important? Barzillai is an important character in the story of King David. Because when Absalom, one of his sons, had a, a coup of sorts and took over the throne, David and people who were loyal to him, they fled for their lives. And as they were leaving to find safety, there was a man from Gilead known as Barzillai who helped them when everybody else was turning their backs on David. So this man Barzillai who was from Gilead became a person of incredible notoriety in the land. In fact, when David was dying and you look at scripture, he's talking about instructions for how he wants certain people to be treated based on how they treated him, right? I've got that own list I'm working through right now that's going to be part of my will. No, I'm just kidding, right? Who does that, right? David did it, right? You, 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 I want you to do this to this person. I want you to do that. And you know, Barzillai, even though he was not a member of his family, he says, I want you to be kind to Barzillai and his descendants because they helped me in my time of need. So here's this gentleman comes along, right? This is decades later. Israel isn't even a nation anymore. T -t Temple worship is in ruins. And we don't know his real name because it's been lost to us. It wasn't in the genealogical records, right? And so he has a decision that he has to make. He's a descendant. He believes, and we trust it is because Scripture tells us, that he is of a priestly line and a priestly lineage. Now, this is important because the only people that could serve as priests were the people from the tribe of Levi, right? You had to trace your descendants back to this one tribe in order to qualify to function as a priest. Now, he had this lineage, but he's looking around in his nation, and this nation is no more, right? Judaism, as a practice, is gone. from the, It's gone from the earth. 
And even, those, even though prophets has declared that there would be a remnant and one day it would return, the circumstance that he was in was one that there was no hope. So what does he do? He says, I think that maybe my wife's name affords me a greater opportunity for notoriety than the name that I was born into. So he abandons his heritage and takes the last name of his wife, which is whoever marries Claire is going to have to do the same thing. Now, now, this was a, a Mesopotamian practice. It wasn't a Jewish practice, but in the region of Mesopotamia, which where they are, this was, this was a common practice, that, that a father could require, if he had no sons of his own, if he had no sons of his own, that he was allowed to require the young man who was courting his daughter, and if this young man would agree to it, that they would take on his name so his line could continue. Now, Judaism was not uh, foreign to this practice. It was a little bit different. It was called the practice of the kinsman redeemer, right? It's the story of Nehemiah. and you, you, I mean, not the, not the story of Nehemiah, Boaz and Ruth. You get into that story a little bit. You can study that, right? But it wasn't forever. It was just the first male child would, would be given this name so that this line could continue, but he didn't abandon his whole entire heritage. Now, why am I, why am I walking you through this? I, I found this months ago, and Vanessa was asking me about it, and I said, I just felt like God was speaking to me. I didn't know how it was going to be worked in, but I, I did this study, and I made these notes, and, and then when we got to this series, I thought, this is why God was highlighting this portion of the text for me, because this is what we're talking about here in this series. The Barzillai factor is whenever I allow my cultural heritage to transcend my spiritual heritage, and my divine purpose as a peacemaker is at risk. I must identify as a child of God and disciple of Jesus above all else. You see, the role of the priest in Israel was one simple role. It was to be the mediator between God and man. Now, we don't need a priest anymore, right? From the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our mediation. But, but in Barzillai's day, the role of the priest made a way for man and God to be reconciled through sacrificial worship. This was his calling. It was, it was, it was, his, it was his, his, his spiritual destiny to serve in this capacity and in this way. And he allowed this cultural connection to displace a divine purpose that he had been given by God himself. And many of us, we do that of sorts even today. We identify with maybe our cultural heritage, or maybe we identify with a political orientation, or, or maybe we, we identify with, with some, some other type of, of issue. For, for a lot of times, for guys, it's even just through hobbies and, and pursuits of interest that cause them to be fulfilled, begin to displace and push, push out the work that they're supposed to do for the kingdom. Something happens to us when we begin to adopt a mindset that says, I am going to identify first and foremost as a child of God above all else. It does not matter my ethnicity. It does not matter my country of origin. It doesn't matter my denomination. Come on. It, it's a, right? All of these things that, that sometimes we, it, it becomes idolatry for us. It, it becomes the thing that defines us, and it pushes our spiritual identity down to a place of a second tier. And when that happens, lots of things happen. But one of them is this, is that we forgo our kingdom purpose 
And no matter what your kingdom purpose is, at the end of the day, it all shares one thing. As Paul said, as he wrote to the church of Corinth, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. When your divine purpose begins to get pushed out, what goes with it is the ministry of reconciliation that we're supposed to bring to our community. So that when we go through a politically divisive time like we're in right now, we don't share each other's fears, but we're supposed to feel each other's fears. We don't share each other's political views. That's okay. Sometimes because of our cultural heritage, that in and of itself can define the fears and the views that we have. But where disunity and division comes in is when we relate to our cultural heritage in a way that transcends our spiritual heritage. At some point, I have to say that Jesus is first above all else. Sometimes who we are beyond our Christian faith are strong influences in our lives. If you're married, your identity as a spouse, it's significant. And you know what? It should be. If you have children, this, this, this identity is of, of being a parent, especially when they're teenagers, right? It, 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 it's, it defines who we are. And you know what? It should. The church that we choose to call home, maybe because of a belief system they have, it really begins to shape who we are. And you know what? That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But you know what's supposed to be the context for all of those things? Is that I'm a child of God a devoted follower of Christ, and I want my sophronismas to be the principles of the kingdom of heaven. I want to be characterized in that way above all else. So I've got a little clip off of YouTube that I want to show you tonight, and then I'm going to come back up and close, and then we'll finish with a song. So the tech team's going to cue that up for us, and it just lasts a few minutes. So let's watch that together. We end tonight with the football play of the month. It was executed with amazing precision by the Eagles, the Olivet Eagles. Steve Hartman has the play and the post-game analysis on the road. Between classes, they schemed and conspired. For weeks, the football players here at Olivet Middle School in Olivet, Michigan, secretly planned their remarkable play. Did anybody go, this is a crazy idea? No, everyone was in on it. But like the coaches didn't know anything about it. So we were like going behind their back. I've just never heard of a team coming up with a plan to not score. It's just like to make someone's day, make someone's week, just make them happy. The play, which was two plays actually, happened at a home game earlier this month. The first part of their plan was to try to get as close to the goal line as possible without scoring, even if it meant taking a dive on the one yard line, which it did. The crowd was not happy. Quarterback Parker Smith. But us kids knew, hey, we got this. This is our time. This is Keith's time. Keith Orr is the little kid in the brown jacket. He's learning disabled, struggles with boundaries, but in the sweetest possible way. Because of his special nature, it's no surprise that Keith embraces his fellow football players. What is surprising is how they have embraced him. Hello. We thought it'd be cool to do something for him. Because we really wanted to prove that he was part of our team and he meant a lot to us. Nothing can really explain getting a touchdown when you've never had one before. 
which brings us to part two of their play. If you didn't see Keith, it's because they were so protective of him. But he was in the middle of that rush. And when you crossed the goal line, what was that like? Awesome. <laughs> it was like, did he just score a touchdown? Get your what? camera out. I'm like, oh, I can't. Keith's parents, Carrie and Jim, almost missed the moment. But they got the significance. Somebody's always going to have his back from now until the day he graduates. She's right. When the football team decides you're cool, pretty much everyone follows suit. Today, Keith is a new kid. Although by no means was he the only one who was profoundly changed. What was it like for you? It was like, like once I saw him going, I was smiling like about like here. <laughs> Wide receiver Justice Miller. Like nothing could wipe that smile off my face. Why did it affect you so much? Because like he's never been like cool or popular and he went from being like pretty much a nobody to making everyone's day. Justice admits the play wasn't his idea. I would have not really thought about that. He says it never crossed his mind to give Keith any glory. Well, I, I kind of went from being somebody like mostly cared about myself and my friends to caring about everyone and trying to make everyone's day and everyone's life. Which may just make that touchdown the most successful football play of all time. Steve Hartman on the road in Olivet, Michigan. It's powerful, isn't it? You know who I would have been in that story? I would have been the angry dad in the stands. Did you hear that? Hey, come on, right? Yeah, that would have been me. I would have sat down. I would have said, I would have said something like, that's a coaching problem right there, right? You, you, we, we find ourselves in circumstances and situations, and all of a sudden we realize people are playing by a set of rules that we don't buy into. Now, it shouldn't take very long to realize those young kids were playing by the set of, the, the, the set of rules that all of us should be living by, right, which is putting other people ahead of us who look different who act different, who believe different, who have different kinds of fears and different kinds of cultural heritage and different kind of denominational affiliations. At some point, we've got to decide what rules are we going to live by? Are we going to live by the principles of this world that Paul was trying to talk to the church in Galatia about? And he was saying, Stop, you got to leave that stuff behind and begin to pick up the principles of the kingdom of heaven that talk about thinking of others as more highly than ourselves. And when that begins to happen, when that begins to happen, your list of people that you will pursue in community begins to get bigger because your reasons to not to get a lot smaller. I invite the worship team to come back up. Father, as we just kind of put a capstone on this night together, but not just on this night, on this entire series, on race and politics, but I pray that we would come out of this series different than the way we came in. That, that your word would have the transformational impact on our lives in the way that you said it could. And we know at the end of the day, God, there's only one thing that can stand in the way of your word changing our heart, and that's us. There's a place of surrender that you want us to come to. So for the person that's here tonight, maybe as they look back onto the story of their life. They can't find a moment in time where they've made a vow of devotion to Christ. Father, I pray that they find that right here in this moment as we sing this song. 
maybe for, for, for people who are like the, the angry father in the stands who's just who's always frustrated with people that are different than they are. We, we pray that in this moment that something supernatural would happen in their heart. That they would say, God, I, I want to I begin to live by a different set of rules, the rules that you would have of me. Father, that coming into this holiday season, coming out of this, out of this series, may it be that the sophronismas of all of our lives, what characterizes us is that we look a whole lot like Jesus. How we live, the attitudes of our heart, our actions towards other people, and the diversity that surrounds us. In Christ's name, come on, let's worship together.